0: Hello and welcome. This episode is the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame, and I really want to throw it round to the panel, who we've got here today. Starting off with you, Nick.
1: Hi, I'm Nick. I work as a forecaster here in our Exeter operation centre, and uh, yeah, interested to see who we've got
2: to put in the uh, put in there today. And you, Jeff. I'm Jeff Norwood Brown. I ex scientist and now working uh, more in the admin side of things for our business group here in the Met Office.
0: And also, very importantly, to Catherine.
3: Hi, I'm Catherine. I'm the Archivist for the Met Office. Um, So I look after all the old stuff. Um, And today it's actually my nominee who's going, hopefully, going into the Hall of Fame. That depends on what the panel (laughs) think at the end of this podcast.
0: Absolutely, Catherine. And I'm Penny Tranter, and I'm the lead presenter for this. Um, So really, it would be quite interesting to start off with, What credentials does someone need to have to get into the Mostly Weather Hall of Fame? Nick,
1: do you want to start off? I think they need to have something named after them. A number, a technique, something like that.
0: Fantastic. A wave. wave.
1: How
3: about you, Catherine? Um, I think they need to have done something notable, but that's not necessarily something that everyone needs to have ever heard of. It's just something that is then useful to us in some way later on.
2: Okay. I think previous Hall of Fame entrants have been—they've uh, made a major contribution to uh, weather forecasting uh, and been inspirational as well.
0: Mm, so today's entrant, then
3: Catherine. So today I would like to nominate Lewis Fry Richardson, who far too few people have ever heard of.
0: Okay, so well you're gonna—you're gonna sort that out today, aren't
3: you? <laughs> yeah, my plan is to change that. Um, so you know, over the course of this, we're going to go from Southwest Scotland to water on trenches of france uh we're going to cover quakerism we're going to cover the nwp fractals you name it we're probably going to have gone there by the end of this podcast this guy did just about everything.
0: wow he sounds amazing so where do you want to start then catherine
3: um, well, I think we should probably start in 1881. When okay. When Richard Richardson is born.
0: Fantastic. Um, <laughs>
3: so <laughs> it sort of seems a good place to start, really. Yeah. Uh, so he was the youngest of seven children. Uh, he was born to a Quaker family up in uh, Newcastle. Right. Um, and he then goes to school in York, um, in, at Bootham School. It's a Quaker boarding school. And that Quaker theme is going to keep coming back. I was and just going to say, air 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 you've air 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 already air mentioned water. the word Quaker three well, yes. times.
0: <laughs> yes. <really> <laughs> Anybody around the table? What, what, what does Quakerism actually mean? Because I have to be honest and say that I'm a little bit ignorant in that subject area.
1: Well, I know Darlington football team are nicknamed the Quakers. All right, that's a good one. <laughs> no, no, there is a big association with that, that church and that religion in the area around Darlington, so it is with
2: good reason. They okay. make oats. Quaker oats—that's the only thing I've got. I'm afraid.
3: Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I don't know a vast amount about Quakerism. I'm afraid, but essentially, it's, it's a very pacifist religion. Yeah. Um, and um, it's a very it's a very quiet religion It's based around contemplation mm. and mm. thought rather than kind of going out there and making a big smash in the world sort of thing. And I think that's actually something that comes through with Richardson. You know, he does things, but he doesn't go and headline them and he, you know, he'll step back. Mm. He'll put his Quakerism before becoming famous or mm. becoming notable. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a quiet but very dedicated religion.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, I have got a little bit of information here about Quakerism. Uh, refusal to participate in war, mm-hmm. plain dress, refusal to swear oaths, opposition to slavery, and teetotalism. Well, so we've
3: certainly come across one of those <laughs> it, uh, definitely in the course of uh, this. I have no idea if he was teetotal, but I surely <laughs> he was.
0: And then also, um, we have some of them, founded banks and financial institutions, so including Barclays, Lloyds, and Friends Provident, and also manufacturing companies including shoe retailer Clarks mm-hmm. but more importantly three big british confectionery makers Cadbury, Roundtree and Fry
3: yeah and of course you think about the the villages that um, that you know they built up, up um Roundtree up in up in York you know mm-hmm. it was very a, a, an era when people were sort of really changing the face mm-hmm. of manufacturing mm-hmm. and civil rights and you know, well, civil rights thinking of that in a slightly different term to the way we might now think of it, but, you know, the, the rights of the of the little people, the individuals. Yeah, um, yeah. And yes, so out of this, we have Lewis Fry Richardson. Um, he was always known to have an inquiring mind. Um, so age five, his sister told him that money grows in the bank, so he promptly planted some in the ground and was very disappointed when it didn't grow. Mm.
0: Oh, if only if only it did.
3: Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, by 1911, by this time, he's gone to Durham and um, then Cambridge, Um He's um, working on, uh, well, working with mathematics essentially mm. um, and working on a method for approximating numbers uh, which he calls the, the Richardson extrapolation and um, which I don't know a great deal about except apparently it's really useful for computing. Anyone else know anything about it around the table?
0: No, I'm afraid <laughs> <You're> not. <laughs> I
3: think basically it's really good if you, want to, if you want to do computing because it allows you to um, to, to accurately um, approximate, which sounds weird, but apparently it works. Mm. Um and then we get to 1912 um, when Richardson's on holiday off the Isle of Wight, um, and he hears of the uh, he hears of the sinking of the Titanic. Mm. Um, and his first thought was, "Well, could that be avoided if ships could send out a focus beam of sound, and then measure how long it took for that uh, echo to reach them to come back to them? Because that would tell them that something is ahead of me, you know, a yes. distance away." Big iceberg. Yes. Big in iceberg. This case. Yes. Um, so he tried this out, getting his wife to row him in a boat. Love it, Um, went out into Sea View Bay, blew a whistle, stuck an umbrella over his shoulder and listened for the echo coming back into the umbrella. Pretty good going for a starting point, but I mean, he basically developed the concept of echolocation. Um, and then a few months later, he uh, filed a patent for the similar in, in water, and so that's basically sonar. Sonar, yeah, wow. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So by clever f- man, f- f- twelve, this guy's come up with something that's you know that's really useful for uh, for mathematics and sonar. So you yeah. haven't even got to weather.
2: You can see the way his, his mind's working even then, can't you? Because you can't see the iceberg; it's dark. It's at night. This is when the whole incident happened. So if you can't see it, you can't smell it. You can't, you know, taste it or touch it but maybe you could hear it. And yeah. that's quite a leap of imagination just there.
3: Yeah, you know, he could he's thinking so far outside the box. Yes. And I think that's what enables him to come up with essentially NWP, which is where we're going next. Yeah. Decades before you could you know, anybody else yeah. would even been able to think of the idea. You know, he is so far ahead of his time.
0: Yes, because after 1912, 1913,
3: 1913. there he is involved in the world of meteorology. Yep. So by 1913, he'd been employed as superintendent at Estellmuir Observatory, which is up mm. in southwest Scotland. He had no practical observing experience whatsoever. Basically, didn't know much about the weather. Um, but they'd employed him because he was good at theoretical physics, and they wanted him to start working on this idea. He wasn't the. Only, it was being batted about as you know. Could you maybe, in some way, use physical formula, f- formulae to, in some way, predict the weather? You know, and he seemed to be a good a good person to step off with this task. Is this possible? So he started working on that, um, looking at um, basically putting together a series of mathematical equations that represent the physical processes that mm. govern the atmosphere, and then um, plotting that out around the globe in a series of gridded points. He was a, sort of came up with this concept of grid mm. points, which is still absolutely key. to yeah, it's valid today, isn't you, it? Now. Yeah. Um, and even the basics of his formulae are still there in the bottom of the model. Mm. It's still the same thing. Um, and so he sort of came up with this and drafted his book. And he was encouraged He was encouraged to publish it. The Royal Society even voted him £100, which was a lot of money then, yes. to publish his book. But he refused because being, you know, kind of, you know, I suppose, Quaker again, but you know, he wanted to be complete in his approach. So he wanted to actually test it out before he went and published anything. Yeah. And then we got to 1914, and the world changed. Oh, and he's a Quaker. He's a Quaker, yes. So what happens? So what happens is that um, he gets worried quite early on that his work might be used for some kind of military purposes. Yeah. Um, and he puts in quite regularly for leave to to go and join a Red Cross unit or the ambulance corps, and he keeps getting refused yeah um, but he refuses to work for anything that might be connected to military purposes you know straight back to what you were saying earlier will not work for anything will not do anything that links to the military yeah um but in the end in 1916 he just you know, gives up basically and resigns his post which is not a good thing for the thinking of his future career you know, resigning a post in the government is never going to go down well um but he resigned and joined a friend's ambulance unit so that's a quaker ambulance unit as a driver. Yep. Um, and then he spent the rest of the war transporting um, wounded casualties backwards and forwards from the front lines. Very dangerous job.
0: But he survives, doesn't he? He, survives. he yes. survives. And then what does he go on to do?
3: Well, it's not even then, it's while he's doing all of that. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're at war, you're in the trenches. It's, it's kind of one of the worst possible scenarios you can think of to be doing science. Um, and this guy takes his draft book with him, takes a set of observations and then starts actually going through his equations. and, work, and, and As he, you from, do. As you they do. do. You know, um, and he, so, he so, took a little bit of spare time, such as one has, and basically a heap of, sat on a heap of wet straw and worked out his equations for NWP. Um, which is just incredible, frankly. Mm. Um,
0: <laughs> An amazing man, really.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Every, everybody do else that. is
0: worrying about whether they're going to survive or not. And here's yes. this man.
3: And, and he's sitting there doing complex yeah. physical equations. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, so, so, and these equations basically are trying to forecast horizontal momentum, which is basically wind, pressure, humidity, and the stratospheric temperature over Central Europe.
0: Well, which is amazing, isn't it? It's huge.
1: (laughs) How did it go? (laughs)
3: <laughs> how, do I, how do i put this not well <laughs>
0: we're in the middle of a war yeah. etc
3: yeah so technically the results were actually disappointing he, he came up with um variab- uh, variables that were far too wide. They, they weren't physically possible and it kind of all didn't look right at all which she was quite disappointed by but i've given his due, he, he published after the war anyway right um, but, but we'd actually we've yeah. mentioned
2: his wind measurements before <clears throat> if i remember rightly, episode six
3: Go, Jeff. Of the the Mostly Weather (laughs)
2: podcast, um, we referred to uh, Lewis Fry Richardson's attempt at measuring wind speed and direction. And basically what he did was he built himself a a small shack with a corrugated tin roof, cut a hole in the shack and pointed a gun out through the roof and then fired the gun in increasing angles until the bullet was blown back onto the top of the shack. And then he worked out from that angle uh, what the wind speed and direction was aloft. So, And there's actually a picture, if you go to the show notes of episode six, there's actually a picture of him in his little shack with a gun. Sadly, we don't get issued with firearms anymore in the Met <laughs> Office to, to do observations, <laughs> but that's one way of doing it.
0: Probably too expensive. Maybe. <laughs> think
3: insurance
0: maybe. Maybe. Maybe uh, yeah. so <laughs> <other>
2: word. <laughs>
3: But I mean, a seriously cool guy. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, and actually, although although results are disappointing, actually, um, a meteorologist in um, in the nineties went through Peter Lynch went through and actually looked at his work and realised that the problem was that he wasn't well, he wasn't applying a tech which tech, a technique which actually hadn't been developed yet. Mm. So it's smoothing, which is what we now do or what the model now does. Um, automatically. Um, I don't know a great deal about it, but essentially it takes the data and it smooths it. Um, Anybody and help on that? If you apply that, then his forecast was basically right. He actually, he got it right if you apply smoothing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite technical again, but it's all part of the assimilation cycle. It'll take various observations and it will, will basically plot a smooth, a smoothed gradient between them, like a mm-hmm. uh, Oh, very it's complicated sort of math, like, ex- 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah.
3: So that's okay, quite that nice. makes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but
0: he did he did um, you know come up with the word computer, didn't he? Which is still in everyday still, language.
3: Yeah. So um, so the, I mean he, he he sort of came up with all of these equations, um, came up with his his draft, and then terrifyingly, frankly, for the world weather forecasting, um, at the Battle of Champagne, he sent his document to the to the to the um, to the rear to be looked after and it got lost under uh, a heap of coal mm. magically it turned up again six months later amazing <laughs> um heaven knows how but i mean without it we'd have been decades behind with all of this um and it was then published in 1922 and yes he coined the term computer because after he'd done all those complicated um formula, he then decided to write down kind of his in his imagination how this could work remember there's no such thing as a computer Not even close, you know, the things we type into today. There is nothing like that. There's nothing that can actually do his maths. So you guys think, well, how could I do that? How could it actually happen in a useful period of time? It took him six weeks to do his one forecast test. Mm. Um, He figured out that if you put 64,000 people, actually it should have been nearer a million, in a massive room and call it a forecast factory, but you can do this. And he called them all computers because they were computing calculations. He called the
2: people computers. He called the people computers.
3: Um, And he described this, and although it's, you know, it goes on a bit, but I'm gonna read this anyway, because it's just too good not to, sorry guys. Um, (laughs) And so he described this forecast factory. Yeah. Um, So he says, imagine a large hall like a theater, except the circles and galleries go right round the space, usually occupied by the stage. The walls of the chamber are painted to form a map of the globe. The ceiling represents the North Pole, the tropics in the upper circle, Australia and the dress circle, are um, Antarctic in the pit. A myriad computers are at work, computers of course being people, mm-hmm. on, the, on the part of the map where each sits. But each computer attends to only one equation or part of an equation. The work of each region is coordinated by an official of higher rank um, and n- numerous little night signs display the instantaneous values so that neighbouring computers can read them. Each number is thus displayed in three adjacent zones, so as to maintain communication, and from the floor of the pit, a tall pillar rises. Uh, It carries a large pulpit on its top, and in this sits the man in charge of the whole theatre. He's surrounded by several assistants and messengers, and one of his duties is to maintain a uniform speed of progress in all parts of the globe. In this respect, he's like the conductor of an orchestra, in which the instruments are slide rules and calculating machines and mm-hmm. um, it's amazing because you know some of that we see in the Met Office today don't he's you he's effectively describing a supercomputer yeah. in 1920
0: yeah
3: you know, before you could have even dreamed of such a thing he's you know that's parallel processes and that's how we do supercomputing you know, moving numbers from one grid square to the, next, to the next to the next to the next it's exactly the same thing we do now it's just incredible that he actually came up with this so after all of that Yes. Excitement. Oh, that excitement then what does he do he turns to the office he comes back and he starts working on turbulence um, wow has, has an amazing <laughs> work on that and then the met office becomes it, it had been part of the board of trade and then it becomes part of the air ministry now the air ministry basically owns the RAF so you've got immediately you'll mm, get a hint here of where we're going a bit of a conflict all of a sudden we yes. have a defense issue going on yeah and basically, Richard Watson decided that there was no immediate risk that his work would be used for military purposes. And so he resigned. And that was basically the end of his work Well, in most things. But certainly he never, he never worked in meteorology again. Just think about what he could have achieved. Yeah.
0: Well. Yeah. But That's I mean, I mean, what he did achieve was incredible, was incredible, wasn't it? Because he was the forefather. Of numerical weather prediction nwp yeah, isn't we
3: call, call him the, the father of nwp yes yeah, absolutely yeah um, and actually one really nice thing is the met office hasn't forgotten him um, so we've got our new our third supercomputer over the way over the other building is, co- uh, is called richardson building on richardson ray yes. um, and actually the new the kind of the, the next generation coding that they're producing to work on next generation computers is called elfric lfric so it actually, oh, okay. of cutting edge coding after L.F. Richardson, which I think is so cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, he died, didn't he, in sort of 1953. But you know, as you say, his memory still lives on, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and
3: he died. He died the year after the first. Kind of attempt at nwp using actual computers had taken place mm. so he lived just long enough to see the start of his dream actually come to fruition although it was 10 years before the first operational nwp went ahead in 1962 which is actually still quite impressive that we actually yeah. had computers producing forecasts that we were then re- using to a certain extent mm-hmm. actually happened um on the 2nd of november 1965 which is pretty good going
0: yeah, so I mean, NWP is still very yeah. much what we use, isn't it, Nick, in forecasting today?
1: Yeah, it's it's a huge step change since those early days, as computers have got you know exponentially more powerful as the decades and decades have gone on to this point. But uh, as you say, all those early those early sort of points you had and the ways it all worked are just so relevant to today. It's just the same, but on a, a much bigger and electronic scale.
2: So, Catherine, you mentioned uh, he was involved in fractals. at uh, Very at the beginning of this uh, tale. So uh, is that correct?
3: Yes. So, you know, kind of leaving the world of weather behind, um, Richardson doesn't disappear off of our map completely. Um, He actually got very involved in conflict modelling. And believe me, this is going somewhere, um, because part (laughs) of that involves measuring the length of a country's border.
2: So, how do you measure the length of a country's border? Well,
3: precisely, he started looking into it and discovered that basically there were loads and loads of different measurements for the same distance. And the more he got into it, he realised that essentially, the smaller length of unit you use, the longer your coastline will get, or the longer your border will get. So,
2: the the, the first problem is, say, let, let's take Britain. Um, we're going to measure the 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 uh, you yeah, know the the coastline of Britain. Or do we do it when the tide's in or when the tide's out? That's the first problem. <laughs> um, if you if you say if you've got a cove, uh, let's imagine Lulworth Cove. Do you, if your ruler is is longer than Lulworth Cove, then the actual inlet is not going to be measured. So maybe you half that ruler, so you can actually get a, a feel for how how big that inlet is. But then, how far do you go down? Do you measure around each individual rock at, at low tide? Do you measure around each individual grain of sand, you know? And what it turns out to be is that the smaller uh, you go, uh, the longer the coastline of, of, of any particular country becomes. And if you follow it to its uh, extreme, then actually the coastline of Britain is infinite.
3: <laughs> Which is fantastic. But actually that essentially gets us to fractals uh, because he came up with that idea, um, and it's known today as the Richardson Effect, the fact that you can just get smaller and smaller and smaller measure, units of measurement, and therefore larger and larger and larger distances. Yes, yeah, so these I mean, people who were of
2: uh, my age may remember in the uh, in sort of late eighties, early nineties, fractals became uh, quite the thing to have on posters and on t-shirts, and, that's, and these are these really uh, they're, they're, they're quite uh, quite beautiful to look at. But the thing about them is that you can zoom into these shapes infinitely, and there's always more detail. Um, one of the classic ones was like uh, it, it looks like um, a fern leaf but as you zoom into each frond on the fern it's actually a smaller fern leaf in itself and so on and so forth and the more you zoom in the more detail you get and you never actually get to the finite point.
3: Yeah I mean it's just such, they're such beautiful things um, and that you know one of the founding principles that Benoit Mandelbrot father of fractals um, actually quoted was um, the Richardson effect so you know it, it's considered that that's actually part of what sort of inspired Benoit Mandelbrot to sort of really kind of nail that concept of fractals so yeah he, you, you find him right there at the heart of that as well
0: yeah it's amazing isn't it I mean it, it, he didn't have any children but I thought I would just throw this fact in he didn't have any children but his nephew did you know was Ralph Richardson the actor not that that's got anything to do with LF Richardson, mm-hmm. but I just thought yeah, I would yeah. <laughs> put that into the it.
3: Effect? Yes, definitely.
0: absolutely. So, what do we think then, everybody around the table? Does he go into the mostly weather Hall of Fame? What I are think our thoughts, On the basis
2: Jeff? that his ideas still form the basis mm. for numerical weather prediction, I think he is absolutely, definitely into the Hall of Fame.
0: Okay, so that's one for. How about you, Nick?
1: Same sentiments of Jeff. And he was a novna, like myself. <laughs> so <laughs> very important. A, no, no, in all seriousness, um, yeah, one of the absolute founding fathers of the modern way that, that the world of NWP and weather forecasting works. Undoubtedly for me, he sits in there.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I've got the casting vote, obviously. You know, well, it's, bit li- it's a bit like, you know, strictly. Um, and yes, it's a unanimous vote.
3: Excellent. Thank you very much. So my, my Lewis Ferry-Richardson, father of numerical prediction, founder of fractal theory, pioneer of supercomputers, echolocation, sonar location, turbulence, you name it, he's there. Thank you. He's now into the world, mostly by the Hall of Fame, and that's exactly where he should be.
0: Thank you very much, everybody. And we'll go around the table and say thank you very much. Catherine. Bye.
3: Thank you. Cheers.
2: Bye. Bye-bye.
0: And bye from me as well. Thank you.